I'm guessing from your reaction that modifying this neural enhancer is a viable method to achieve what I need. Sure. Hey, why not? Now, we boost your neural impulses to reconnect with his katra, then pump those same signals into your noggin, and voila, seroclusion. I gotta say, this katra stuff is way cool. An uncharted superhighway connecting all of consciousness and life? We have exactly no time to discuss the metaphysical implications. I can sense that Sarek is unconscious. I want to use this mind mill to wake him up so he can activate his ship's transponder. Right, like a psychic hit of speed. I was thinking an adrenaline shot, but okay. There's one wrinkle, though. Um, radioactive interference from the nebula is going to diffuse your signal. You will never be able to maintain a strong enough connection with Sarek from out here. So we take the discovery inside the nebula and get closer to them. Oh, bad idea. Guess what happens if we mix those cosmic gases with our concentration of mycelium spores we have on board? Uh... Huh. Okay, so we go in with the shuttle. Oh, you'd have to fly into that soup with nothing but hope and a prayer. Are you really that crazy? Good to know. Welcome to Simply Syndicated's Discovery After Show, your place for a detailed analysis of each episode of Star Trek Discovery. Now here are your hosts, Sean Ray and Rick Tatro. Hello everyone and welcome to Simply Syndicated's Discovery After Show. My name is Sean Ray and tonight we're going to be talking about the sixth episode of the first season of Star Trek Discovery, which was titled Leafy. And it was written by Joe Minoski and Ted Sullivan. And forgive me if I butcher this man's name, but it was directed by Douglas Arnikoski. <laughs> or Arnikoski. Uh, joining me on the mic tonight is, first and foremost, my co-host Rick. How are you, sir? You have betrayed logic, sir. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> I'm doing good. And friend of the show and no stranger to Simply Syndicated, Mr. Scott Madison. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. And tonight we have two new guests to the show. First of all is the first lady of Simply Syndicated, Miss Allison Downing. How are you, ma'am? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. It's great to be here. Oh, great to have you. And our special guest tonight is a name that most uh, Star Trek fans will recognize because he's the author of dozens of novels in the Star Trek tie-in series, as well as many, many other novels and comic books spanning fandom from the X-Men to Superman to Star Wars Mr. Michael Jan Friedman, how are you, sir? I'm great, thanks. Nice to nice to be here. Now, Rick uh, is our is our resident Star Trek expert. Uh, Rick, do you remember the Voyager episode Resistance from season two? Uh, I don't know Voyager episodes by title. Can okay, you give me a... it's the it's the one where Janeway is trying to rescue Tuvok and Balana from a prison, and there's a local man that thinks that she's his daughter. And oh yeah, a, yeah. Okay, Michael wrote that episode. Oh, awesome! Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. a good one. Oh, wow. Well, actually, I co-wrote co it. Let's okay. let's credit where credit is due. Right. But, well, uh, you were in the room. There was writing done. It's yes. all good. I, I mean, yeah. Well, before okay. before we get started, actually talking about the episode, I I wanted to ask uh, 
Michael and, and Allison as well, since they're both new to the show. Uh, Michael, what what do you think of Star Trek Discovery up to this point? Are you a fan? Well, I, I have to say I am. Okay. Um, I I think it started off a little a little rough. Um, the the incident that that made Burnham um, uh, a mutineer. Yeah. It, to me, it was a, it was a little vague. It was a little, you know, when you're gonna when you're gonna stage a mutiny, you have to have a a, a very clear cut and strong motivation. And and I was I was I was just puzzled by how that that experience turned her into a mutineer. You know, she she spoke to to Sarek, yes, and uh, he told her that you know this is how Klingons. Uh, react to certain certain uh, uh, behaviors, yeah, okay, but it didn't seem that urgent, and it didn't seem like something they would never have talked about before. Yeah, you know, all of a sudden, I, I happened to speak to him, and he told me, "You haven't got a second to lose. You have to treat them with the Vulcan hello," and 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 it just seemed to me like she could have she could have gone down a more moderate path under the circumstances. So I was like, boy, is that really, did, did you really have to mutiny to do all that? Yeah. And, and so I was a little, I was, you know, I, th- I thought that would, that, that kind of threw me off a little bit, but I have to say as the series has gone on, each episode pretty much has been better than the episode before. And the last episode that I saw episode six uh, Lethe, what I thought was amazing. I thought that was one of the best episodes I've seen on any television series ever. Oh, that's high praise indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Allison, what have you thought of it so far? I I really love it, and I, I didn't know that I would. Um, but I kind of like the the war setting. You know, harking back to the old DS9 days where there's some serious rucks going on with some bad guys. And uh, so I've, I've been really enjoying it and I've liked uh, the boldness that it's shown. I've wished that it would get a little bit bolder in some directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish the Klingons would speed up. <laughs> just that the addiction just drives me insane. I just want them to, you know, I'm not. I understand they're being very dramatic and want to emphasize their points, but spit it out, guys. I can, I can read faster than you saying it. You know, come on. Um, I think that that really that's kind of my only major criticism about the way it's been presented to me. Um, the Burnham character, yeah. Um, Again, I, I would I would agree with you, Michael. I don't really see that uh, she only had the option to mutiny, and um, and I don't know whether if you do it single-handedly, whether it really is mutiny, <laughs> or whether it's something entirely different. Um, I think it's grand that she's been seen as this precious cargo, and and I love that today we got to really see. Uh, her ability to connect with Vulcans and and that whole mind fight with Sarek in that other plane was perfect. Yeah, you know it was um, every every great episode is 
is inspired by something. It's a it's a high concept where you go. You know, I mean, when I when I pitched to the show, I wasn't on the staff, but when I pitched to the show, you have to go in there with a high concept, so mm-hmm. they can know immediately this is what the story's about. You just put on the trappings of your characters as opposed to some other actors. In yeah. in, in the case of the episode I I co-wrote. Um, it was it was inspired by um, Don Quixote. It was yeah. uh, the pitch was Janeway plays uh, Dulcinea to a Quezon Don Quixote, and immediately they knew what it was. This was Sophie's choice. Yeah, if you remember, in, in the movie Sophie's choice, she had to make a decision. She had mm-hmm. to decide to either save her son or her daughter, and she decided to save her son. In this, in very much the same way, Sarek chose to give to give Spock the opportunity rather than Michael, and and I could see it. I could see how it came up in the pitch session. I could see how they broke it down, you know, and and they did an extraordinary job of it. It was great because your assumption is that here here's a mutineer, here's a woman who's who's made some some questionable choices, and then there's Sarek the ambassador, the great, you know, the great Sarek, and, and who's likely to be more fallible. And yet in this case, it was Sarek who betrayed her. Yeah. That was, and, and, uh, and as we I didn't see, think of the consequences of a negative emotion and how that would feel forever. Right. Right. And no empathy, you know, no, even a, a cognition that she would feel something. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, you know, the, the, betrayal um theme is carried out later in the episode as well right um when Lorca you know I I saw that coming as well but it didn't make it any less enjoyable you know the you know where where he's going oh uh she's gonna she's gonna uh take away my captaincy hmm right yeah here's a here's a woman yes it's a woman maybe I loved at one point but can't let her take away my captaincy. Yeah, loves the mm-hmm. captain's chair even more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Especially right. that ship. Yeah. Okay, Rick. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I know. You're a you're a fan of the show. What'd you think of uh, this episode? Ah, oh, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. Uh, I love every episode of Star Trek to date that has dug deeper into Sarek has been a joy to watch. Um, I love the fact that he is a flawed Vulcan. Um, mm. I mean, we we have seen pretty much since Enterprise, which, I, you know, we can debate how well Enterprise handled the Vulcans or not. Um, they showed us a race that has this veneer of perfection, and you just get a little bit under that veneer, and they are anything but. Um, and Sarek has always been portrayed as, you know, kind of like the epitome of Vulcan, at least until we got Tuvok. I think Tuvok has been the most Vulcan Vulcan we've gotten so far. Um, yeah. yeah. But the fact that that Sarek is maybe by Vulcan terms obsessed with humans. Um, you know, he's married at least two uh, and had a you know had a child with one and now we see that he, he raised another human. Um, Does he see him as pets? I don't know. What what is it? <laughs> No, I, th- I think he's, uh, you know, how many, I-, I think he can be likened to Americans who are just crazy about Asians or vice versa. Asians who are crazy about Angelina uh, Jolie with a, a chocolate box children. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> p- people you know who, I mean? yeah, people who are 
utterly attracted to the quote unquote exotic, to the other. Um, yeah. Only because he's a Vulcan and he's a high ranking Vulcan, he's he's chosen to channel that into trying to bring the races closer. Um, but in the process, he's losing some of his Vulcanity. Uh, and I love seeing that, you know, we saw that with the, with the TNG episodes with Sarek. We, we are, we're now seeing the beginnings of that. Um, I like how this episode may or may not be telegraphing some of his heart problems later. Cause that's where he was injured. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I just, I, I really love it. And I'm, I'm, uh, Lorca is such a complicated character. I, I, the way he's being written is amazing. Uh, You know, he, I I guess we're just sort of jumping right into the spoilers here. So yeah. Yeah. um, You know, he's Cornwell reminded me of Ripley from, from alien and aliens in this episode, because she's like, just as soon as I'm out of your power to stop me, I'm going to ruin you. And he's like, Oh, really? I half expected her shuttle to explode two seconds after it passed through the (laughs) the hangar bay. Um, So, you know, Lorca just gets more, I mean, he's a bastard, but he gets more interesting with every episode. And I, I totally agree with, with Michael. This, this show just gets better and better as it's going on. Um, I agree with you, Allison, about the Klingon, but I think they did better this time. And I think they're doing it. I, I have no basis for this other than just watching how it's happening. I'm, what I'm hoping has happened is that as they went along with the series, they they refine the prosthetics more because I think the problem with the Klingon speaking is one there it's you know a completely language with absolutely no basis in English. Mm. Uh, two, they're you know a lot of them are having to learn it phonetically, and three, this new Klingon makeup, the dental appliances you can hear that they're really struggling against them. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah. this one, it mouths don't look very uh, mobile, well, do they? No, and and the the teeth and stuff, but this one especially Cole. I forget the actor's name, and I, I I'm sorry, but the guy playing Cole really seems to be doing well about getting a conversational feel to his his speeches. Yeah. Um. And Laurel uh, Mary Chifo is does a really good job with that too. But yes, I'm thrilled. I I just finished watching it for a second time, uh, about ten minutes ago, and I'm ready to watch it again. I'm I love this this series is fantastic. Yeah. Do you, do we like Ash? Oh, we'll just wait on Ash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got some things to talk about with with Mr. Tyler. <laughs> but uh Scott, what you what you think of the episode? Uh I I thought it was very well put together. Um they are um as has already been mentioned, as the season is progressing, they are getting better at the construction of the episodes. Um they are uh, they they make more sense. They are playing less mysterious and and coy with their with their details um, with, with each episode and um, they are throwing just enough of the character development pieces for all the recognizables um, so we're getting some progression and some evolution with everyone with uh, Michael with Lorca Tilly Stamets um, and even some of our smaller characters like uh, like the Admiral and um, the Doctor, whose name I have forgotten. Culber. Cul- oh, yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and they are definitely taking advantage of the, um, you know, continuous season-long story arc that they didn't do as much in previous series. Um, 
Yeah, obviously the Dominion War stretched over three seasons on DS9, but it wasn't every episode. Uh, whereas with this one, they're telling one story and they're taking all the episodes to do it. So they can layer in these little mysterious elements like uh, the scars on Lorca's back. They have to mean something because the Admiral took such notice of them. Um, and, you know, the introduction of uh, Lieutenant Tyler and the the power play among the Klingon houses. It's the little pieces that they're doling out to us uh, with each episode while still, and this episode I think was a really good example of still being able to tell an individual story per episode that is somewhat detached from the season long arc because this episode was about Michael saving Sarek. Yeah. And, and yet the war with the Klingons is still uh, a factor and Lorca's plans and his subterfuge and the use of the spore drive. Those are all still, still a part of every episode, including this one, but the war and the ongoing story wasn't the, main focus of this episode and they seem to be able to manage that to some to one degree or another with every episode so it's not pure soap opera it's individual star trek stories with bigger helpings of the season-long arc Mm -hmm. than we're used to right Mm. although it wasn't perfect no right no (laughs) you know um one one thing that 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 bothered me was, you know, toward the end there, Lorca says to uh, to Burnham, "Well, you know what? I'm going to make you an officer, uh, or or a, you know, a uniform personnel anyway on my bridge." And it, it's episode six. You know, that's the kind of thing that should have been. You know, what did we go through all of that for, if not to make her an outcast? And now she's being accepted. You know, this yeah. this is a little. I mean, not not. It's not as egregious, but it reminds me a little bit of Voyager. You know, they set up this ship, and with a schism, a natural schism between Starfleet officers and and outlaws. Right. Right. So it's two populations, and how are they ever possibly going to get along? And by episode three, they're all Starfleet, pretty much. They're all yeah. uniforms. Yeah. Why did we go through that again? So, certainly, so, by, certainly by the end of the first season, it was one crew. Yeah. Now, by, within a couple episodes, they were all more or less getting along. But by, by the time we got to the end of the first season, there wasn't even any uh, friction between the Starfleet officers and the Maquis anymore. Um, yeah. That, that, well, that, so, I saw that as a missed opportunity on Voyager. Now, with Discovery, yes... Um, Lorca is bringing Michael on as as a bridge officer. That doesn't necessarily mean that she's accepted by the crew. It means she's accepted by the captain. So, so there's, there's, there's still hope. Right. There, well, there's still hope that she'll be an outcast to everyone else. Yeah, and definitely. She, and she will end up thinking that only the captain and Tilly and sometimes Stamets have her back. Mm-hmm. And well, she has, have... still has to fight against the rest of the crew. I, I think uh, I think with the exception of uh, Saru and the woman who survived, uh, Kaylee, the, K- the one with, with the, that her name, Kaylee, yeah, yeah, the Kayla. one with 
prosthesis. Hey, the, the one with the prosthesis over her eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. With the exception of those two, I really didn't, I, I don't really see people being particularly put off by Burnham. And, and, and now that she's accepted by the captain and she's a bridge officer, I don't know. I just thought that that happened too quickly. Sometimes he, he was her biggest fan anyway. He's the one who got her on, on the ship. No one else wanted her there. Tilly bristled at having to share quarters at first and then kind of thought, no, I can get some stuff off her. I can learn from her. Um, so she's only just getting a little bit more settled with a few more people. It's always been Lorca who's wanted her around, known that she'd be useful for war somehow. Well, and that's, so that's as far as I'm concerned, she just moved rooms. Yeah. She'd just come higher and more this, visible. This is I, I have two big questions from this episode. And the first one is, why is Lorca so devoted to Burnham? Because he's made it, this episode more than any other, made it very clear that this, there's something more than just, I can use her because she's smart. There's a level of, you know, like what he said to Ash, you know, bring her back without a scratch. And he thinks she's talking, he's talking about the shuttle. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, No, bring Burnham home or don't come back. And I mean, she's, she's smart. She's useful. But there's something more that Lorca either thinks she is. Or there's some relation there that she doesn't know that's that's going on. There's some subtext to Lorca's actions we haven't seen yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of importance that he's placing on Michael does not match up with her uh, apparent usefulness as far as we can tell. Yeah. Well, you know, he's already he, he's already making uh, Ash his security chief, and he just met him last week. He doesn't know yeah. he doesn't know anything about this guy, and he's already oh yeah, you're going to be my chief of security. <laughs> I think Lorca's playing Ash. Yeah, I think Lorca okay. doesn't trust Ash any further than he can throw him. Um, I uh, <laughs> you think you, you think it's a friends close, enemies closer thing? Uh, maybe, maybe. Should, should we get the should we get rid of the elephant in the room and talk about Ash? Yeah, there is a rumor. Now this is this is rumor that Ash is actually Vok in disguise. And the reason that the rumor has gotten so big is because if you if you Google uh, Vok, if you go to like the IMDb and, and look up the actor, uh, I had it in my notes what his actual name is. Oh, his name. Okay, so Ash is played by Shazad Latif, and he's been in stuff like Penny Dreadful. He was in the second best exotic. Oh, that's right. Hotel. He was he was Jekyll in Penny Dreadful, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He was, and uh, Vok is supposedly played by a guy by the name of Javid Iqbal. Now, if you Google that, there are no pictures of an actor, and if you go to IMDb, there is no. There's no other TV shows. There's no commercials. There's no nothing with that actor. It's only Star Trek Discovery, and it's only Vok. So the the idea, the theory is that this guy is not real. This Javid Iqbal is not real, <sighs> and that Shazad Latif is playing both roles, and that we're going to find out that uh, Vok, that Ash is actually Vok in disguise at some point. You know, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying they're the same guy, but you never see them both in the same place at the same time. <laughs> you know? By that reasoning, I'm Batman. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't have any special information. I, I do know I do know some of the writers, but 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 you know, I've never asked them about that. The um I'd be surprised if they got IMDB 
to to collaborate with them on, on ghost this. someone. That yeah. that sounds that sounds a little far fetched. Um, yeah. If it happens, I don't like it because I don't think because Ash is very human. He moves like a human. He talks like a human. I don't think Vok could just learn that overnight and yeah. just and just yeah. become a, an operative like that. Um, no Seattle. And yeah. you know, right. know, know how to answer properly. Now, keep, keeping the, the rumor in mind, because I've, I've been hearing this rumor for like at least a week now um, since our introduction to Tyler. So when I watched Lethe this afternoon, I was keeping that theory in mind, believing that it was complete rubbish. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that Tyler is Valk in disguise. So as I'm watching the episode, one thing I did notice was that there were a couple moments where Tyler's face looked sort of like what you expect Vox face to look like under the Klingon uh, makeup effects. Yeah. Mm. Maybe a little bit. May. <laughs> so I wondered if you squint. Right. Is it the and same go in another room. Maybe. I don't know who plays Vox, so I suppose it's it's possible. But as I thought about it, I came to the conclusion that if Vok is Tyler and Tyler is Vok, then it is not Vok going undercover as Tyler. It's the other way around. Yeah, yeah, there's that. It's what and, do you mean? Well, I, I think that if if they are the same person, I think that uh, Tyler has been undercover. Section 31. That too. That too. That ties into my second theory. Sorry, Rick. That's that's just the way it is. The the theory that I built up is I think more likely than a Klingon going undercover as Lieutenant Tyler and being that good at acting human. I think what's more likely is that Ash Tyler is an operative of Section Thirty One and went undercover on Takuvma's ship and put himself into a position of power with the Klingons for reasons that we have not been made privy to yet, but I don't think that the, the prevailing theory out there is correct. That Vok is pulling one over on Lorca by going undercover as Tyler. I think that Tyler maybe went undercover as Vok. Well, and now, and now he's dropping the, the Klingon persona for, for a minute and going back to being his, his Tyler persona. Now this does leave out in the cold, the, the thread where he was going to go off with, where Vok was going to go off with his girlfriend to the, you know, Klingon ladies and learn how to be awesome. They <laughs> haven't, they haven't picked that up in a, several episodes. So yeah, yeah. I can't factor that into it, but if you take that off the table, they might be the same person, but he's infiltrating the Klingons, not the other way around. Well, you know, I, I kind of like the section 31. I, I, I think you might be overcomplicating it a little bit, but, but I kind of like the Section Thirty One angle. I, I think that that could work if you know if if they knew what the events were and they placed him in the right spot to be with Lorca to work his way into Lorca's confidence. And you know, that's I, I would say that's as valid a possibility as any. I, that, that was the first part of the theory that I came up with. Is I before I saw this week's episode when I'm hearing the theories that you know Vok is Tyler. I'm thinking it was more likely that Tyler is section 31 and not a Klingon in disguise. But then mm. when I saw that maybe they look alike, when I saw there was the chance it was the same actor, then I compounded that with the, 
double agent aspect, but being a member of Section 31, that was my suspicion from the beginning. You know, it's 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 tricky here because, you know, you have if you go back to to original series level technology, we know that from Niles Barris that a, a Klingon can masquerade as a human. Yeah. Mm. But but because of the Tribbles episode. Yeah, and, but and co- conveniently, the, tri- the Tribble is missing from Lorca's office now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I guess, but but you know, with the level of technology technology that they have here, it doesn't seem to jibe with with the level that we saw in the original series. You know, they it's it's a it's as much as they're trying to fit it into yeah, the holodeck. It, yeah, there's a holodeck. Well, okay, and and you've got this, and you've got this way of 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 uh, of uh, traveling through the universe that that was never even contemplated in the original series. So I'm not sure that that Stanitz wouldn't be able to identify a Klingon. Klingons are different internally than you know, different from humans. So I'm not. I don't know about the masquerading as a Klingon angle doesn't doesn't seem to jive to me. I was thinking that Ash, I, I thought that Ash, you know, I, I was kind of down with the their escape from the from the bird of prey was too simple. Although, as I said last week, what's more Star Trek than wrapping up all your loose ends in 42 minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thought that Ash is a spy of some kind, uh, I'll buy that. But now I think they're they're. They're making it seem so much that now I'm I'm ready to go. No, now they're it's just a red herring. Um, mm. But uh, you know I the holodeck thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like I like the actor. I like the character. Um, if he, if he was a spy, well, okay, I don't think he's Vok unless they've got some sort of mind altering technique because. The reason Vok was so easily manipulated by both Cole and Lorel was, uh, and Takuvma to begin, uh, if you want to go back to the beginning, is he is that sort of uh, wide-eyed follower. Mm-hmm. And he's absolutely naive about anything other than, I believe in this leader and I am going to do everything that this leader says. And then when he became that leader, all he did was parrot Takuvma and drive his people to the edge of... of of death so that Cole could just come and kind of come in. Hmm? He's not subtle. No, you're you're right. And (laughs) yeah, he's naive and he's, he's a he's kind of stupid actually. Mm. Uh, Whereas Ash is none of that. So, and, and it's been, they established it's three weeks since they escaped. uh, Or, okay. Sorry. (sighs) Calm. It's talking complete (laughs) sentences. (laughs) Uh, Choose Your Pain was established as being three weeks after the previous episode. If it had been three months or a year, I might have bought the Vok theory. But there's no way Vok became Ash in three weeks, unless mm-hmm. there was some sort of technology we haven't seen. Um, and you know, and if that's what they do, fine, I'll go with it because you know, again, this is a this is a universe where Turnabout Intruder happened. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I also think it's really tenuous to just go All right. There's one Muslim name and another Muslim name. Let's just complete them. It mm-hmm. could be the same guy, but you know, Shazad Latif and Javed Iqbal are about as different as John Smith and Bob Krasanovich. You know, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> And as for the holodeck thing, it wasn't really a holodeck. 
Well, and I, I watched it again uh, this after or this evening. Um, there was no physical interaction at all during that simulation. Yeah, it was all. <laughs> it's just lights. Basically. It's just it. You know, it was it was a holographic simulation. So it wasn't mm-hmm. the 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 revolution of the holodeck in TNG is that the 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 holodeck creates actual solid things that you can interact with. Yeah. Um, you know, TAS argue whether it's canon or not doesn't matter. They had a holodeck in TAS. So we know that the, the technology, as far as Roddenberry was concerned, existed. He just what he either didn't have time to get it on TOS or they didn't have the budget for it. The budget, yeah. Um, or they just couldn't film it. They couldn't film the notion of it. Yeah, because he always wanted it to be there. He his intention was that it was going to be there from the beginning. Well, it's also uh, probably a little bit a little bit of retcon because where they were in the '60s, looking into the future. We're at a different place now looking into the future. And there's there's things that we can see that we will have gotten to that point when we get to the 23rd century. I know we may have holodecks based on the uh, augmented reality kind of stuff that we have now. And uh, they have replicators on this show. They didn't have replicators in the, in the original no, series. They, they, had, they had food synthesizers, and that's the same thing this is doing. I thought it was like an automat kind of thing. (laughs) On on Enterprise, it was more of an automat. On TOS, they had a little hole in the wall with a a door that slid up, and then their food was waiting in there, which is essentially what they have on Discovery. It's just dressed up a little bit fancier and and looks nicer because of the special effects. But I, I absolutely think that while making Discovery, we're seeing a little bit of revisionist future history because the technology we saw in TOS was what was what future technology would be from a 1960s perspective mm-hmm. and unbeknownst to any of the of the producers in the 60s we have either come close to met or surpassed a lot of that technology just by the you know 2000s so now we're having to look ahead to near that same period, but with a revised sense of what could the technology be. And there's no real great way to uh, to come to terms with that other than to just accept that there will be aspects of discovery that look and feel and behave more high tech than TOS, even though we're looking at a potential rollback in technology in 10 years time in universe and that that's gonna just be you know the the nature of the beast when it comes to making television we can't expect them into much as i kind of wish they would we can't expect them in 2017 to make a series set in the 23rd century using a 1960s sensibility of what the future will look like right which is it plays hell with canon but it's the it's just the the practical way to make television. Well, Michael, can can I ask you a quick yeah. question? Yeah, uh, sure. along these lines, because because I've I've kind of wondered this for a while, basically since Enterprise, and since you've been you've been involved in the storytelling of the Star Trek universe. Um, in the sixties. The, the the with the with the exception of a few people like uh, Arthur C. Clarke and maybe Isaac Asimov, the uh, the assumption was that in the future, energy production would be the revolution. 
And instead, what happened was miniaturization and solid-state technology and information transfer and stuff is what really happened. Has that ever been addressed in Star Trek? Because I think that's where the that's where the, the schism happens, is up until the mid-90s, uh, it was still being assumed that free, clean, massive amounts of energy would become commonplace, and computer technology would stay almost kind of the same, which is why you saw people carrying around multiple pads and stuff in, in TNG, but they could generate energies necessary to do stuff that would take all of the output of every star in every galaxy <laughs> just to do once. Um, has that has that ever been addressed in a in a systemic way? You mean within the Star Trek metaphor? You know, yeah. like like no, because that's a you know that's kind of a you know. While I think you're right, I think that's that's a fairly obscure, at this point obscure um, uh, footnote in 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 the history of of technology. So no, I don't think they anybody's ever been tempted to do that. But let me let me say, you know, back in the '60s. People didn't think they didn't really project where computer technology was going. Uh, you know, computers in those days were not that far removed from from computers that took up entire rooms. Yeah. So I don't think anybody said uh, conceived of, let's say, the pads that they were using in in Star Trek as in terms of capacity, in terms of uh, uh, function. I. Th- think they just said gee this will be something that that we can that'll happen i don't think anybody really thought of it as even as computer technology it was you know when they talked when they mentioned the word computer it was really just to talk to a voice that had access to some information which which was always very limited you know (laughs) relative to what you what you'd expect today um but you're right you know i mean i mean historically energy was a was a big thing there was this uh in the World's Fair, in the early '60s, they um, they talked about uh, the three day, the three day work week, because by by you know whatever point in the future they were projecting, they would have one, they would have uh, unlimited energy that wouldn't be a problem, and two, they would have robots to do everything for us. <laughs> Robotics haven't come nearly as far as uh, as everybody thought they would. That was really the um, the leading edge of 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 technology was really uh, um, robotics and not not information technology, you know, in in terms of where it was going in science fiction. I think it's really really hard for for a layperson who who doesn't work in any kind of uh, technology or de- developmental role in any kind of thing to sit here and, and wonder what things will be like in 30 years mm-hmm. it's impossible for me yeah, yeah. well now yeah. it's now it's really impossible back in the back in the 60s you could kind of still write science fiction it's it, it's much harder now because we've caught up and uh, yeah. and 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 say and gone beyond where anybody thought we would be so uh, by now so it's it's it, I'll, I'll tell you it's increasingly hard to, to write yeah. science. Hopefully I won't be hijacking the conversation. No, 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 you're fine. Uh, the question I asked from the first episode was why was it necessary to place this series where they did in the timeline? Why not just go a little bit beyond 
uh, where Voyager was, where where Voyager was, where the 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 um, pre JJ movies were. Why not just start there in the future, rather than go back in time to this period? We could have avoided all these questions about continuity. You know, why are the Klingons looking like the Klingons? Uh, what about technology? Eventually, we'll be meeting. I'm sure the Ferengi will show up, and eventually, the uh, you know the the Romulans will show up, and we'll be running into all kinds of uh, of of retconning. Why not? Why not just place it out there in the 24th century? Well, as I as I look at the show, and I mean th- this is this is just my opinion, but they I think they could have said it in the future. I I don't know what their plan is that would make it need to be where it is. But uh, if they had changed it so that it wasn't the big bad guy wasn't the Klingons, it could have been somebody else. It could have been the Romulans, or they could have made up a new alien, and. Uh, and if they didn't have all the stuff with Sarek, uh, then they could have put it in the future, I think. But, like I said, I don't know what they've got planned for the rest of the season and for next season that may make it necessary to have it in this time period. So, I haven't heard a good explanation. I've heard some theories. The the. The one I've liked, well, liked isn't really the right word, and I can't remember where I saw this, and I don't, I don't know if it was an official speculation or if it was just someone in one of the Star Trek groups on online I'm part of. Uh, but uh, the the thought was that going forward, the technology became so powerful that it, it hindered storytelling. I can because, see that because then it just became about. Uh, how you know what what gadget will save the day this week, um, as opposed to telling stories about people? Uh, you know, I was not thrilled with it being a prequel myself. I've I kind of let that go because it is what it is, and and you know I'm I'm not going to continue complaining about it. Um, I do like the way they're handling this because they've put it in a time period where we don't know a whole lot, so we can't. We don't have to worry about, oh, well, that didn't happen. I've heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, we didn't see this in TOS and we didn't see that in TOS. Um, but if you take all 700 plus hours of Star Trek, even given how much we've seen, we're still looking at a very tiny percentage of life in the 23rd, 24th centuries. So mm-hmm. just because we didn't see it on TOS doesn't mean it didn't happen. There are a few things, you know, if they bring a Romulan into this and everybody sees him, that's going to be a big problem from canon because they specifically said no one has seen a Romulan until Balance of Terror. Unless um, everybody that sees him dies. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I kind of like the way they're setting up the spore drive as to be, un, you know, not really viable. Mm. Um, and so we know it doesn't continue. Yeah, because we know we won't see it again. It's going to be a failed experiment, right? Yeah. Uh, And they're also setting up the Discovery as a black ops ship. I was thinking it was going to be Section 31. I'm starting to drift away from that now. I don't know. Uh, Michael, just to to give you a quick background, I despise the concept of Section 31. I think Hmm. I've managed to let go of a lot of my Roddenberry purist ways from my youth, but I think Section 31 is such is so antithetical to the universe that Roddenberry created I that agree, it right? just it just pisses me off. <laughs> and he, it's like they but, wouldn't even have that. There's no there's no door with that on it. Yeah. No one I no mean, one I, works in that department because it doesn't exist. I, Not even in mythology. 
<laughs> I, I dig that Starfleet should, ha- you know, we've got the Tal Shiar, we've got the, the Obsidian Order. It would make sense that Starfleet would have a black ops organization too, but not one that is so totally autonomous that they don't answer to anyone. That's the they part of Section 31 I don't, I can't buy. They don't uphold the rules of the Federation. Yeah. How can you be in the Federation? The whole thing is, it doesn't logically work. You can't be in a Federation and work outside of it and against its rules. Yeah. But if if this is, you know, I, I, I love those black badges. I don't know what they mean yet, but I thought they were pretty freaking awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, I it really seemed like Discovery was going to be a Section 31 ship, but then it was like, well, if it is, why would they be so obvious about it? Because the whole point of Section 31 is not being seen. So I don't know. I don't know whether whether we're, it's even going to be part of this or not. Anymore. I think it's a straight-up renegade, and they know it, and that's what makes a good war general. Uh, he, he's, he's a little bit maverick. He's prepared to take risks that others wouldn't, and that includes taking on mutineers and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> he, he's now, a trier. He'll have a go at anything. Speaking of Lorca, now it, it sounds like, Sean, you had something that you wanted to move on to, but um, if you're okay with it, there's another theory that I heard about Lorca that I want to see what people think. Yeah, I want to I want to move into talking about what happened with Lorca last night, and I also want to talk about what happened with Michael and Sarek. So we we can talk about Lorca first. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, I when I was doing a little bit of uh, post episode reading, I discovered that apparently there is a fan theory floating around out there about Lorca. Has anyone heard any any specific theories about Lorca? Nope. No. No. Apparently, there's a theory floating around that Captain Lorca is from the mirror universe. Oh yeah, I did hear that. I did hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't see why it's necessary. I think he's much more interesting if he's not. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I think that theory comes from the fact that, um, someone, I think it was Jonathan Frakes actually let slip that the mirror universe was going to appear in this season in some way. He didn't give any specifics, but he did mention that mirror universe is going to play a part. I think conspiracy theorists, super fans, heard that and started casting about to find where that could get layered in, where that could be integrated into the story. And somehow they came up with the theory that, oh, well, this is how the uni- the mirror universe comes into play. Lorca is from there. I but it's pretty no, clear it's what not. they're setting up for the mirror. Who the who they're setting up for the mirror universe? Yeah, person. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be around yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah I and thought, I'm not. I I'm, not I'm not convinced. I, I think I think Jonathan Frakes may have been pulling a J.J. Abrams with us. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm not convinced that it's going to be the mirror universe. I think it's going to be, like we said last week, a mirror universe, mm-hmm. uh, or a mirror image. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, micro universe or something like that. But yeah. now, it, if Frakes was was correct, and if he was telling the truth, then the way to bring in the mirror universe, it it seems much more plausible that using the they call that network that they are utilizing for the spore drive is a much more uh, believable way to cross over from. It's basically magic mushrooms. Let's be honest. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, from, yeah. from Prime, is off his head. I'm telling you, he's dabbling. Yeah, so, so, something is <laughs> something is off with him, and it might be 
especially with the way that he was acting in this episode, yeah. I think that he might be the one that's from the mirror universe. I think that he might have been yeah. switched. So that, with that's a, what I, I meant. With, yeah, yeah, yeah with a mirror counterpart, and and using that network is a much better way to cross over one person to the other side than all of these wacky headcanon theories that people are cooking up to explain how Lorca could be from the mirror universe. I well, really did, don't think it's him. Did well, any of y'all? Yeah, did any of y'all watch After Track last night? Yeah, no. I did. Did you see no. the the, uh, the 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 preview from next week? Is yeah. uh, stamp. Uh, do you guys want to know? Stamets yeah, acting all feel good hippie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. St- Telling you. Magic mushrooms. And- yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Culber going like, uh, sorry, he's been different lately. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let's, uh, okay, let's talk about what happened with Lorca last night. So Admiral Cornwell comes to the ship because uh, they went off looking for Sarek and she said, hey, I didn't tell you you could do that. And, the Vulcans are mad, and she's yelling at him, telling him he's he's losing it. He hasn't been the same since the since the Baran. And uh, Lorca basically says, "Shut up and kiss me." <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it was a little. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, he kind of he kind of got her drunk first at least. <laughs> yeah. So Lorca has a I guess he has a Kirk like libido, but um, so they uh, so they sleep together, and then she wakes up and. Well, and wait, wait, starts... wait, wait. Be- be- before you, they have a past. Okay, they're yeah, they yeah, are yeah. former lovers. So this wasn't just him banging his superior officer. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a rekindling up, of yeah. When when she wakes up, she starts kind of like touching the scars on his back, you know. So obviously, he kind of reminds me. I don't know if you guys have ever read any of the any of uh, Peter David's novels, The New Voyages. Uh, is that what it's called, Scott? Was it New Voyages? Uh, New Frontier. New Frontier. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of Captain Calhoun from those from those novels. I think that may have been the basis. Yeah, where I, they, I can where see they that. Started from the, for this not, character. Not until you mentioned it, but but yeah, now that you say that, I I can see that. And um, uh, the New Frontier series is actually what I'm going to be uh, moving on to. Ne- well, well, no, next I'm reading a Quantum Leap novel, and then I'm going to go back and restart New Frontiers. Um, well, he pulls a he pulls a phaser out and sticks it in her face, and she freaks out, you know, <laughs> and basically says, "You're not fit to be in charge of this ship." And when I get back, and we're going to have you taken down so that we can get you some help, and blah 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 blah. She does a and, Ripley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he starts finagling away to get her off the ship and and get her taken care of i guess because i thought i thought she was gonna i thought she was gonna be killed you know i thought he's sending her to her death because yep. uh and, and we we kind of skipped what happened with michael and sarah and we're going to talk about that in a minute but anyway sarah can't go to the peace talks because he's hurt and so mm-hmm. he says hey she can do it and sends her and at the end of the episode she gets taken prisoner and everybody that came over there with her gets killed and uh and uh, Cole kind of shows up and says, um, "I'm coming. I'm coming to talk to you, or whatever." <laughs> I'm looking <laughs> you know? forward to meeting you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of maybe she has a past with him too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was a really I would I was not expecting Lorca to go that far to somebody that he supposedly cares about to to so much as basically send her to her death so that he can keep his captain's seat. 
that I thought that was pretty cold, but it's an interesting turn for that character. I'm, I wasn't surprised. Like I said, I was expecting her shuttle to blow up. I was expecting them to be less subtle than that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's clear that Lorca is damaged, very damaged. And mm. she threatened, you know, his. All right. We still have to learn what happened on the Baran because just saying I blew up my ship so my crew wouldn't be captured doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. It means that he was captured, I or think. Or it means that he was those, not on the ship anymore. Yeah, which, those scars didn't come from nowhere. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, kind of there's a lot. scars that result from torture and imprisonment and prisoner well, of warness. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, the scars was tri- was a triangle. It wasn't, you know, there were several just regular, just regular, just mm, scars. And then there was a perfect triangle. Um, and that's what she was touching when he woke up and put the phaser in her face. Um, there's there's a lot more to this. Um, mm-hmm. I like Admiral Cornwall a lot. Uh, Jane Brooke plays her great. And I, mm-hmm. I was also very impressed with the fact that, uh, you know, especially in this age of HD, uh, Jane Brooke, I don't, uh, I've, I've got her IMDb up. Uh, uh, you know, she is, she is, uh, let's see, she was born, oh, she's, She's uh, uh, four years older than me, so she's fifty-seven. And she's aging naturally. Yeah, there, there's. It doesn't look like she's had any work done. She's got crow's yeah. feet. I mean, mm. she's a gorgeous older woman. She's and an actor. She wants to use her face. Yeah. To make money. Yeah. I yeah. have every respect for her. That yes. She hasn't frozen herself. And... Say that again, sorry. What was that? You know, there, there are actors. There are actors who, who who have work done and and act anyway. I respect her as you do, but but there are exceptions. You know, there are people who who do have that work done and 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 you know can still express. Uh, yeah, there, there are some who it's it's done with a light touch and it works. Um, but yeah, so so many people who are just one you know, and they just look these wax caricatures of themselves. Um, yeah, and just, the, the so only impressed. expression they've got now is bemusement. It's just like, yeah, I can't, I can't frown. Yeah, I can't smile. When you go I can full just on that. Kenny Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, what if we were to look at Lorca, what Lorca did in the light of what Cisco did in the episode um, in the Pale Moonlight? Wonderful episode. Right? Yeah. Did Cisco My not- favorite. Yeah, a, a wonderful, wonderful episode. Did Cisco not um, uh, pull a fast one? Yeah. You know, he in, he did, but he didn't. He let Garrick kill a Romulan. Mm-hmm. He didn't kill. He didn't send any Federation people to their death. Yeah. So there's a there's a difference, but he does have blood on his hands. Yeah. But I think I think Cisco's motivations were saving the Federation and saving the the uh, Alpha Quadrant. Uh, Lorca is strictly thinks- saving him. No, no, Lor- well, he may have rationalized it that way, but this is all about Lorca not losing his ship, and this is about his position, his his reason for living. The fact that he's still alive, he has tied it so up into in this uh, survivor's guilt. At least this is my theory on him. His survivor's guilt has become so enmeshed in 
I've got the ship that can save the Federation from the Klingons, and I can't afford to die. Therefore, anything that's going to affect that or take me off this ship is directly – it could cost the Federation. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And and it makes the question, is he is he trying to save himself and rationalizing it as I have to be – here in the captain's seat for in order for the federation to survive is is it rationalization or does he honestly think this is what needs to happen for the sake of the federation i need to remain the captain what's the difference well one one is just cheap rationalization when it's when he's really being selfish and the other is true albeit perhaps a bit misguided but true patriotism that's what i'm saying what's the difference from his point of view Oh, that, that, I don't know. It's, it's psychology, really. Um, I think he sees himself as eminently capable of going to war, and probably more so than any of his peers, and he's captaining the best ship in the fleet for that job. And uh, I think he sees it as only right that he does it. Yeah. This, is, this is the do Pegasus it all over does it in again. his way. Mm-hmm. Or, or the, uh, the, the, I forget the captain's name in, in the wounded that was going, that was going rogue and taking out the Cardassian ships. Captain Ben Maxwell. It was Maxwell. I was thinking Maddox and that was wrong. It was Maxwell. Yeah. Um, you know, they both thought they were doing the right thing for the Federation. Mm. Um, so there's precedent for this in Star Trek. Uh, I love to see the the nuance and the levels and and you know Jason Isaac is just amazing his it, the way he's he's playing the character, but I think we may be watching his descent into you know th- this may be a you know an Ahab or Bly level of of descent into madness and taking an entire crew in the most powerful weapon ever with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. I think it's just going to be crazy when we get to episode nine and it's revealed that he's a, a changeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened with Michael and Sarek last night. So, of course, we saw we knew last week when we saw the the after trek uh, scene that something was going to happen with Sarek that was going to hit Michael in a in a psychic way because they're connected through a mind mail. We found out a little bit more about that mind mail last night because uh, when we found out in the first episode or the second episode, whichever one it was, that uh, Sarek had placed a piece of his Katra in Michael when she was young, that sounded a little creepy. It really did. <laughs> he said it? that. Like, how did that but, get in then? Yeah, but then... Uh, but then they explained it a little more last night. She was actually killed in a terrorist attack, basically. And uh, there were some renegade Vulcans that didn't agree with what Sarek was doing, uh, raising a human and having a, uh, a half-human, half-Vulcan uh, son, marrying a human and all of that. And, and they uh, attacked the science academy where she was going to school and she basically was killed in a bombing and he saved her life she was dead for three minutes and he saved her life by performing that uh, mind meld with her and it basically gave her a soul graft i think is what they <laughs> what they mm-hmm. called she it said, in the yeah. episode yeah it sounded funky that it made me want to dance <laughs> i don't know i don't know what that was but about. uh but yeah, so uh, so Sarek was attacked last night by another renegade vulcan who uh sacrificed himself to try and kill Sarek before he could go to these 
peace talks and uh, Sarek was unconscious and and adrift in the Uridian Nebula. Now we've we've heard of Uridia before that was in the DS9 episode Melora and I think it appeared in a few novels and, and well, there there like were that. there were several Uridians throughout TS yeah. TNG and DS9. James most, of them, played, most of them played by James Cromwell, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, she goes with Ash and Tilly and they go into the nebula and she hooks up this contraption on her head that's supposed to help her connect with Sarek. She goes into his mind and he basically kicks her back out. <laughs> but she she goes back in again. But anyway, she finds out while she's in there that uh, Sarek, well, like Michael was saying earlier, had to make a semi-Sophie's choice. He had to decide whether he was going to send Spock to the, uh, to what was it called, the Vulcan Expeditionary Group, mm. or yep. if he was going to send Michael. And he chose Spock. Which basically, after that, blew up in his face because Spock said, "No, Dad, I'm going to Starfleet." <laughs> but uh, so, how did the, the the thing that hurt Michael more than the fact that he chose Spock was that he made it seem like it was her fault that she wasn't yeah. chosen? Right. It was cowardly. Yeah. Very cowardly. Yeah. So I wanted to turn that over and see what all you guys thought about that. It's a betrayal, but we have to think about his logic and what made him do that. And I can't get anywhere beyond that was a really shitty thing to do. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think logic uh, enters into it. I think that's part no. of the problem for him is that is that he did something, um, and, and again, not just doing it, but not but allowing her to feel the blame. Um, I think I think he was ashamed, and and for a Vulcan, shame is shame squared. So he did know, right? That she felt it. So he's just lying after lie. You know, he did know that she'd be hurt by him. Well, yeah, because they're uh, they're connect they're connected through that mind meld. So he has to be able to feel some of it. There has to be some empathy there, you know. Exactly. Uh, so he has to have known how badly it hurt her, even though her her Vulcan teachings make her kind of suppress that and she may not show it but it's there and he has to, he has to know that it's there well yeah, I think I, this I, is a major part of Burnham's character is that by being raised by Sarek uh, and obviously she chose Sarek's teachings over Amanda's um, yeah. she is ill-equipped to deal with her emotions. And that's been a big part of everything she's done uh, in this series. Yeah. Because she squashes them down. Well, and, and, and when she can't squash them down, when she thinks that she's got to save the ship by essentially cold cocking the captain and taking over. And then that goes South. uh, And then everything else she's done is she's ill-equipped to deal with human emotions but because she's not a Vulcan, she also doesn't have the mental or uh, neurological capacity to not feel them. And so she's just kind of been failed by both races. And I think Sarek may be aware of that as well. Because he, he said in you know the, 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 fir- or the second episode that he had failed her at, you know, because of something along those lines. I forget what exactly the conversation was. Uh, mm. But he he said he failed her, and now we're seeing that he really feels deep down inside him how much he failed her, and he's he's aware of it. And mm. 
you know, we'll see in 20, 30 years or whatever, or, or in more like 120 years, uh, just how deeply that sorrow goes into Sarek um, with Spock. But also we have Sarek's own words from Star Trek IV, uh, where his logic is uncertain where Spock is concerned. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, uh, the other thing that I had in my notes was uh, talking about the scene at the end where um, the Klingons took the Admiral uh, hostage. I wrote down throat slashing Klingons because I wrote in my notes last week uh, curb stomping Klingons, and I never got around to actually saying that. So uh, these these Klingons are a lot more uh, brutal. than what we we saw in The Next Generation and DS9 and all that. Well, there, we see them. I think that was in their culture. Uh, You know, there's a Klingon expression. um, uh, A thousand throats can be cut in one night by a running man. So so that that concept of cutting throats is embedded in their culture. It's just that we've never seen it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the, I think the, des- I, I, the descriptions of some of the Holosuite programs uh, on DS9 of some of the great Vulcan battles that they would engage in in the Holosuite with you know, you know, blood up to their ankles that they're wading through. It's just battles. Yeah, right. I said Vulcan. Oops. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the Vulcans too. At one point. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. See, there we go. Thanks. It's hard to imagine the it, Vulcans fighting in any. Other way than getting a glove and just smacking someone with it, <laughs> you know. I, 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 I like, I like the fact. Phaser. I like the fact that Michael Jan Friedman came into my defense. That's that's my cool moment for the night. But I, th- those <laughs> battles that they would have, those Klingon battles in the Hall of Suite, were <laughs> definitely brutal. They just never put it on screen. So so yeah, I think we're not seeing. Klingons that are more brutal than we're used to. It's just being presented more graphically than we're used to. Well, we're, we're also not the seeing the, the actually honor. Does. Yeah, there is no honor. Not yet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I heard, I heard Richard say on uh, Movie News a couple of weeks ago that the Klingons in Next Gen and DS9 had kind of turned into teddy bears. You know, we we were told that they were bad and we were told that they were scary but they weren't doing anything that was making us scared of them anymore. You know, mm-hmm. they we, we were getting along with them, and, you know, Jadzia Dax was having drinks with them every night, <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And now we're seeing them for what they can be. You know, they can be actual brutal warriors that are a force to be reckoned with, so. They just can't talk straight. Right, that's, that's true. <laughs> See, the, these are the Klingons that the Jem'Hadar wanted to meet. They were just—they were just about a hundred years too late. Mm. Okay, um, Michael, uh, what kind? What kind of projects are you working on right now? Well, um, you know, I—I'm uh, doing a original fiction through a through a group that I that I helped to start called Crazy Eight Press, uh, which I believe we talked about. Um, Crazy Eight Press is where I and and Peter David, whose name came up tonight, and and some other writers. I love Peter David. This is this is where we um, we kind of express our 
we were always wanted to tell. And um, and uh, up until now, it's all been, you know, for me at least, with Crazy Ed, I think I've done uh, five books. Um, and it's always been prose, but for the first time, I'm actually doing a space adventure with with some echoes of Star Trek in it because because that's you know in my DNA, um, and uh, and it's called Empty Space. I'm doing it with a uh, with an extraordinary um, Brazilian artist uh, who's doing the pencils, the inks, and and at least on some of the issues, the colors. His name is Caio Cacao. And uh, and uh, we'll actually be doing a Kickstarter for this in January uh, for Empty Space uh, for a graphic novel that collects the first five issues, which will otherwise be disseminated on uh, Comixology in uh, in E4. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's uh, if 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 you like Discovery, I, I think I think it has some some uh, some things in common with Discovery in terms of tone, in terms of mystery. Um, in terms of you not being able to rely on the things you, you could normally rely on in, in something like Star Trek. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think fans of Discovery will certainly like Empty Space. Do you see yourself writing any more Star Trek stories in the future? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I'd like to, um, and I have talked to the publisher about it. Uh, the problem right now is, is they don't have the uh, pocketbooks, doesn't have the license. No one. Has oh, okay. I guess you could say no one has the license uh, for for um, Star Trek books right now. So until that's ironed out, um, they can't buy any more stories. So oh, okay. they have inventory. So no, you know, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know this in the bookstore because they have inventory and they're still churning those out. But at some point, they will run out of out of books and. Uh, um, Hopefully the uh, the license will be restored before that. And yes, I would like to do uh, to do uh, some more, um, you know, on a on a case by case basis. I know David Mack has a um, a discovery tie in novel that just came out well, about the same time that the series started. Is that not through Pocketbooks? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, okay. A sort of a separate contract. Okay. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's uh, for at least two books, actually. Dayton Ward is is writing uh, a second book, and uh, so that's those two are definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, uh, Dave's is out, and Dayton's will come out, but uh, but that's a separate special contract. Okay, I did have one other question I wanted to ask you. Um, you've you've made a living getting to know characters in Star Trek a lot better than we ever had to you you get to know them differently because you eventually have to write those characters yourself does that change the way that you watch this series i mean do you take in those characters in a different way yeah than we do if i'm making sense mm-hmm. <laughs> you're actually you're making you're making a lot of sense it's a it's a fantastic question um yeah i, I do I, I mean i mentioned earlier when i when I looked at this last episode, I, I thought about the pitch that spawned it, you know, and somebody had to be saying, okay, Sophie's choice. Uh, Sarek has to make a, a, um, a decision between his, essentially between his two children, as Sophie did in the movie, and what are the uh, repercussions of that? And whoa, 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 wait a second. Wouldn't it be cool if Burnham uh, uh, had to carry the guilt of it? And not and not him because of his cowardice. 
wow, we've, we're now seeing a different side of Sarek. We're, we're giving form to Burnham. I'm sure this was all discussed before we ever saw the first episode, before they ever produced the first episode. These are the, you know, they were thinking, oh, that could be an episode down the line. So, yeah, I tend to kind of reverse engineer the episodes, try and see how they came together. And sometimes, uh, you know, particularly in this episode, it's very impressive. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. My pleasure. But it actually was my pleasure. And uh, Allison, uh, yeah. Shaft, Shaft is back. It is indeed. We had a little break this week because we couldn't get ourselves sorted out with the technology. But yeah, we'll be back on Saturday evening. Uh, well, evening in the UK, but breakfast somewhere and daytime somewhere else. And yeah, it's, so it's, it's fun Shaft to be is, back. Shaft is uh, super happy super happy fun time is that right uh, that's correct yeah richard yeah, and allison the, super happy fun time but it, it's got a, an even longer name right now and none of us have memorized it which is why we still call it shaft <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly it's a late night daytime breakfast show but it's just too long it's too long so yeah shaft <laughs> we'll be back on saturday all right and scott thank you for being here Oh, thanks for having me back. It's uh, it, it's always a lot of fun, uh, especially since I don't have a, a home podcast of my own yet. <laughs> All right. And Rick, as always. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, Michael, it was a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Thank you. You the and, same here. And Wally, always great to have you on board. It's been it's been ace. I'll I'll be back. I'll be back if you'll have me. Oh yeah, oh. absolutely, absolutely. And Scott, you yeah, nice man. Meet- well, I'm not. I'm really not. <laughs> and uh, and to the listeners, hey, we didn't have a ton of listener feedback this week, so fix that situation. Send us some messages so we can share them here on the show. Uh, you can come to our group, which is fans of Simply Syndicated's Discovery After Show. Talk about long names. Uh, you can send us a text message or a voicemail to area code 205-642-8380. Uh, make sure you check out Simply Syndicated and the dozens of other podcasts available uh, there on all kinds of topics and take advantage of our uh, feedback contest. If you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, I'm going to put your name in a drawing to win a copy of David Mack's novel, Desperate Hours, that we're going to give away at the end of Season 1. And that'll pretty much take care of this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the show so that you'll know when the next one comes out. Next week we'll be talking about Episode 7, which will be titled Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll feature some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey shenanigans <laughs> and the return of Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd. So we'll talk to you then. Thank you for joining us for Simply Syndicated's Discovery After Show. Your feedback is welcome. Leave us a comment and review on iTunes or follow us on Facebook. The views and opinions stated on this program are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of Simply Syndicated, CBS, Paramount Pictures, or their sponsors. Star Trek Discovery is owned by CBS and has no affiliation with Simply Syndicated or this podcast. No infringement of copyrighted material is intended. Be sure to join us again next week as we analyze another episode of Star Trek Discovery here on Simply Syndicated's Discovery After Show.